We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real-world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. Well, hello everyone who's watching us live online. My name is Sean Buckley. I'm a lawyer that volunteers with the National Citizens Inquiry, and I'm deeply honored to be with my three guests this evening, and I'll ask them in a second to introduce themselves. Um, but before I, I do that, I just want to indicate that it's been a rather exciting week for the National Citizens Inquiry. For those of you who have have been following us, we were just frustrated as we marched literally across the country holding hearings that the mainstream media was ignoring us. So we had three days of hearings in Truro, Nova Scotia, totally ignored. Three days of hearings in Toronto, Ontario, totally ignored. Three days of hearings in Winnipeg and the CBC ran a story on us, <clears throat> but didn't really go into the meat of what was happening. It was actually a little bit humorous because if you watch the CBC story that was done in Winnipeg, it was a TV story, and they're filming, um, and we actually, it's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is up on the big screen because he was attending virtually. And while they're filming him, he's actually talking about the CBC doing a hit piece on him after the great Barrington Declaration was first published and, and you know, was gaining traction. Um, but they didn't report on that or anything of substance. So then we marched to Winnipeg, Manitoba for three days, of, or we, uh, sorry, I just talked about Winnipeg. We went to Saskatoon for three days of hearings. No, no mainstream media attention. Red Deer, Alberta, no media attention. Vancouver, British Columbia, no mainstream media attention. Quebec City, no mainstream media attention. And then finally in Ottawa, no mainstream media attention. But this week, we are getting mainstream media attention. So the uh, British Medical Journal published a piece basically calling on the Canadian government to hold an inquiry 
into COVID. And the way I read the article is, I mean, basically they're applauding how well we did as a nation that, you know, basically our, our COVID measures, which would include vaccination, and then saying, well, we need an inquiry to figure out how to do this better. And they criticized the National Citizens Inquiry for spreading misinformation. And then the National Post, which ignored the large story that for the first time in history, a group of citizens got together to hold an independent inquiry into an event, ignores all of that and just quotes the British Medical Journal saying that we're spreading misinformation. And the Globe and Mail helpfully did the same thing. So I'm actually thinking that this is an accomplishment <clears throat> that we're gaining enough traction out there. The more and more people are, are watching us that we're, uh, we're now, <clears throat> at least in the mainstream media, being accused of spreading misinformation. And I wonder, you know, especially what, uh, what I find uh, interesting about that is if they actually were watching the National Citizens Inquiry, in the lay witnesses, it, it's so clear that some of them, it was a real challenge for them to testify. And, um, you know, they, their stories were just coming from the heart. And sometimes the whole room was weeping. And I, I just, I find myself ethically challenged with them characterizing that type of information, just ordinary Canadians telling their stories as misinformation. Now, we're going to be talking today, and I'm just I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves briefly, and then we'll launch into the conversation. But we're going to be talking today about how the COVID-19 measures, like masking and lockdowns and the mandates, affected children. And this is a this is a huge issue, and and one that's been overlooked. Some of the testimony that came out at the National Citizens Inquiry is just shocking on this. But it's also an issue that I think with the average Canadian resonates. One thing that came to mind as I was kind of getting excited earlier in the day about <clears throat> this roundtable was back at the very beginning, before we had hearings and we actually you know, got our social media team going, well, we had no content. So, um, so my wife, Teresa, had arranged for uh, 10 or 12 people to come and be interviewed. And just, you know, just lay people with no idea what they were going to say, what they would be finding of importance or not. But the theme that came out was children. Like what if what they were most concerned with was how the COVID experience affected children. And um, and I think that's an appropriate focus. So um, I'll ask maybe from my screen, we've got Dr. Karen, Dr. Matthew Koppel and Dr. Francis Christian, if, if the three of you want to go in just that order and briefly introduce yourselves, and then we'll launch into our discussion. Okay, so I guess I'm first. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Karen. Uh, I have a PhD in developmental psych with a specialty in family and social relationships, uh, infants, children, and parents. I was a university lecturer taught uh, courses in that area. Uh, originally, I came from a clinical background, graduated in 1982. So I've been around, I've been observing and engaging with uh, infants, children, and parents for a long time. 
And Matthew, we'll switch to you if you want to just introduce yourself briefly. Okay, uh, I'm a literature and religious studies scholar. I teach young people. I introduce them to classical, biblical, Renaissance, and, and modernist uh, literatures. Um, and um, I suppose if there's one thing that I that I try and work out with them, it's the the sort of recognition that our freedom as individuals and our understanding, all the intelligence that we muster, all the things, all the intelligence that we are uh, praised and rewarded for, that these only really become meaningful um, in the process of taking responsibility within our lives. So it's this sort of uh, attempt to impose a bit of a realistic perspective on the educational process for some of the kids. Uh, my name is Francis Christian, as you can see on the screen. Um, I'm a surgeon. I'm a poet. Um, I retired from surgery in March of last year. Before that, uh, I was a clinical professor of surgery in the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, I was responsible for training residents on how to become a surgeon and medical students. And uh, and also my clinical practice, I was a trauma surgeon and I did things like cancer surgery as well, uh, head and neck and thyroid surgery and things like that. And I did that for more than 30 years. Uh, as part of my roles in the University of Saskatchewan and the Saskatchewan Health Authority, uh, I was also director of uh, quality improvement and patient safety which is a very data-intensive in job. Um, I, um, together with the computer science department, developed an app, the Mobility and Mortality app, which I believe is still being used in Saskatchewan. And um, the, the job involves data analysis in a way that most surgeons don't do on a daily or a weekly basis. But I was very uh, adept, I think, uh, I had to be uh, in analyzing data. And the other role I had was director of the surgical humanities. In that role, I, um, what I did was introduce and reintroduce and engage medical students, nurses, uh, residents, and other surgeons with the humanities, with art, literature, music, um, in the attempt to make them better surgeons and better nurses and better uh, human beings. Uh, because you ca cannot treat the human being without knowing the human story. Uh, I was also the editor of a and founding editor of the Journal of the Surgical Humanities, uh, which achieved a worldwide circulation. I'm, I'm wondering if um, the appropriate place to start in light of how everyone's introduced themselves is like obvious what things we can talk about is, you know, masking and lockdowns and the like, but our children experience something different that um, sometimes isn't talked about 
And that is they actually saw the state challenging parental authority. Like regardless of whether or not parents were for masking or against masking or whether parents, you know, supported the lockdowns or didn't support the lockdowns, our children, first of all, for the first time in their lives, witnessed parents being afraid of the government. And that that's a very interesting thing. <clears throat> and then um, the children as part of that also watched parents losing authority over you know what their children could or couldn't do and, and i mean i think even you know parents that were against masking and told their kids not to mask um you know experienced a very different kind of world in that tension between the authorities and their parents and i'm wondering it might be helpful for us to start the discussion that way and i don't know if anyone wants to volunteer to step in i know i'm surprising everyone with that question but it's something that i've really wrestled with is what what is the what is the impact for us going forward with you know this generation of children and actually watching them are their parents being afraid of the government may i step in may i oh absolutely oh hands so i'm just start start well when you asked that question, I thought of it, the answer from two perspectives. First of all, from secure attachment. From Secure attachment implies that a child feels that there's a safe base from which to explore the environment, and that changes as the child grows. So in infancy and early childhood, it's the ability to go back and forth from the, the secure parent. But later on, you have to feel that your parent is at first omnipotent and can protect you. And later on, the, the child challenges that. So what kind of feeling does that give a child when the person who's supposed to protect them is looking at protection? We're not looking at moral development. That's the other way I thought of this question. When the person who's supposed to protect you can't protect you, because if the person who's supposed to protect you is being told what to do and their views aren't being listened to and you see them not as strong and as a as safe a base as you had hoped, what does that do to a child's sense of security? And different children would be more at risk than others. Uh, those who have a secure attachment might be able to talk with the parent and, and think about that. But children who had an insecure or didn't feel as comfortable or as, as comfortable or that their parents could protect them as well as they would have hoped, I think those children would be more at risk. And the other way I thought of that question is moral development and moral development also changes in development i mean that question can be answered differently for each stage of development so in preschool they might not notice that mommy as much that mommy and daddy are being told what to do but mommy mommy is or daddy or teacher is the person you listen to and the only reason you don't take the cookie is because mommy said no later on you don't take the you you do things morally so that you'll be liked and so on. And then of course the, te the teenager, the adolescent, who's already challenging parents and thinking abstractly about <coughs> moral, those two, I think those the two older groups would be most challenged. Because here, you know, they're supposed to internalize moral development in a certain way with the parents modeling. And here the role model, who's supposed to be providing rules and so on, is treated is not treated as as that authority person. So I I think from two perspectives, <clears throat> um, 
that would be hard for some children. Again, there's a continuum. Not all children are as at risk as others. Uh, thank you, uh, Karen. That was eloquent, and um, I, I thought it was uh, an, an amazingly uh, concise and wonderful summary of what was happening and what could happen. Uh, I, I, I believe that it is important to recognize the rights of the child. Um, I know. Thomas Paine wrote about the rights of man, which was a fundamental volume that inspired the American Revolution. I guess women would have been outraged. Uh, but then so should children uh, have been, because a child has rights. Um, in fact, in the Bible, uh, Jesus brings a child before him and says, Unto such as these does the kingdom of heaven belong. So he puts the child right at the top of the pinnacle of rights. And the, the child has two fundamental rights. One is the right to life itself. And I don't want to say that COVID uh, was the only thing that was impinging on the rights of a child, but it was a major impact on the rights of the child. Um, war, of course, is, is another thing, and, and, and war is destroying children as we speak. Um, I, there was a British Medical Journal article that showed that in the last 10 years, because of the, largely because of the unnecessary engineered wars that America and uh, the Western nations launched around the world, uh, two million children had been killed. Two million. And so uh, that is, is the right to life is a, is a fundamental right. And during COVID, uh, we know that the lockdowns caused an increase in depression, in uh, anxiety. And, you know, the, the rate of suicide among teenagers uh, tripled during the lockdown. Uh, for a dis and why did they lock down kids when it was clear very early? in the evolution of COVID, that kids were at virtually no risk from the disease. They cleared the virus quickly. Uh, for them, it was like a, a mild cold. Uh, if, they, if they ever got admitted to hospital, it was for something else, like a broken arm or, a, um, or, or some other thing. And then COVID was diagnosed incidentally. And very few kids actually uh, were admitted because of COVID. Many of them had underlying problems, and it was known very early in the evolution of COVID that there was more than a thousand-fold risk of dying of COVID between an older person and a younger person. This was completely concealed from parents, completely concealed from the public and from children. Uh, so if a ch if the parent had known at that time, and it was known very early in 2021, uh, and actually even in 2020, um, and part of what Dr. J. Bhattacharya and others were trying to tell the public is precisely that. There is a huge difference in risk between the elderly 
and the young people, uh, less than 20. Uh, the risk is more than thousandfold in the in the older folk, and the risk of dying of COVID uh, in the young people is less than the risk of dying of a car accident. And and so this this um, idea of perspective of risk should have been part of fundamental information given to parents as part of informed consent. It wasn't. Instead, uh, kids were subjected to all kinds of fear tactics, um, you know, intimidation tactics like you can kill your grandma. It was, it was known very early on that teachers, for example, there was a big Scottish study in Scotland and then there were some studies elsewhere like in Sweden that showed that in fact teachers are less at risk, less at risk of COVID than the general population. Uh, because they were coming in contact with a group that had very little risk, had fought, fought off the, the disease very quickly, and were already immune. Many, multiple studies were coming out showing that 75% of the childhood population were, was already immune. And even for those who had recovered, children who had recovered from COVID, almost all of them with just nothing more than a mild cold, even they were said they were locked down. They were masked. They were they said that unless you take the vaccine, you will die. You know the, the these are things which are unconscionable, and society really must take uh, a uh, you know nobody here I, I believe is calling for vengeance or anything of that sort, but there should be accountability. Uh, there should be accountability because if you don't have an accountable system, you don't have a system at all. And so who was responsible for frightening kids when it should have been the opposite? It should have uh, the other great right of the child is the right for protection from harm. And um, you started off this whole section, Sean by uh, pointing out that the rights of the parents were also violated during this whole thing. <clears throat> and the rights of the parents were violated because parents were also given wrong information. It is a fundamental right to, give, to get right information, especially when it's about your child, because not just human beings, uh, mammals of all kinds uh, are responsible for protecting their small ones, their young ones from harm. In fact, uh, if you come near a bear with cubs, they become very fierce and they will kill you to protect their, their cubs. And so parents are the primary uh, authority to protect children. They were let down because, primarily because they were part of this fear propaganda which the media shamefully took part in. Uh, they became part of the propaganda arm of government. And that is one of the definitions of fascism, by the way. Uh, the, the, no, Francis, can I just, can I just yeah. rein you in just a little bit? Yes, of course. And, it, and it's just, um, so some of the people watching, especially if they haven't watched um, much of the National Citizens Inquiry, they might not actually even understand some of the things that you're indicating. But what you're sharing is, is that children were 
really not at risk for COVID. So we learned very quickly, and I'm just kind of summarizing what you said and then also relying on what some other witnesses said, but tell me where I get off track here is we learned very quickly that, you know, COVID as, you know, as far as risk went, it was elderly people primarily with health problems already that were largely at risk, but young people like children really were at no risk. Like you pointed out, they were more at risk from a, a car accident than they were at COVID. So any response at all was was problematic. <clears throat> but what happened is, is, is we had a, a tremendous response. And what I'm wondering is, is if we can focus our discussion on, well, what what were the impacts on children? And you know, so I had started by asking the question because I it's it's something that wasn't fleshed out at the National Citizens Inquiry to date, is what 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 do we think the effect is on children basically seeing their parents lose authority vis-a-vis -vis the government? Like and you brought up you brought up suicides. I, I want us to go to that next. Um because my understanding is is in the teenage population, like the suicide rate is gone off the chart here we have so maybe let's segue to that and then we can just circle back to the other one but we you know like we i mean we all remember what it was like to be teenagers all you wanted to do was hang out with your friends i mean and also start courting and stuff like that as you're going through the puberty experience and trying to learn what it was like to transition into an adult and here we locked them down i'm wondering if if you guys want to chime in on your thoughts on you know what the effect of that was on our teenagers. I I might just get one yeah. point in before we transition to a discussion of of um, suicide and mm -hmm. the um, emotional, uh, mental sort of harm done to children by the by the scare tactics. Um, I think it, it's interesting to note that way back in the what is it the fourth century uh, BCE when when Plato writes the Republic, uh, he has this idea for the ideal Republic that um, it would be a great thing to take children out of the home, not to allow them to be educated by their families, and instead to replace that parental responsibility with uh, surrogate mothers who represent the state, and then everybody can be educated together. And their primary loyalty will then be established with the state rather than with the family. And this, it's an essential part of the development of civilization, Western civilization, but all civilizations, because the first thing you do when you transfer from a tribal to a civilized uh, society, so life organized in cities, is you break, you, you break the clan system, you break kinship ties, and you reestablish ties to the state. And so we keep hearing this is the fourth industrial revolution. What what one of the things that's happening is we're being conditioned to have rights stripped away, as both uh, Dr. Karen and Dr. Christian ha have mentioned. And part of this is is as Dr. Christian said, you you no longer have the right to inform consent. You no longer have the right to personalized medical care where the physician can be honest with you and you no longer have the right to be protected by the parent. Again and again, we have politicians who are stepping in and saying, no, the, the children are our responsibility, the state's responsibility. 
I think that's a key element in, in what, what you brought up in the beginning, Sean, is that is that with COVID, we do have we do see a very clear transition where again and again families are being told that parental authority over children and parental responsibility to children is secondary and that the primary responsibility is between the state and children. I think that's very dangerous and I think it's something that we need to be aware of that, that it's happening across the board and that it really started in earnest in, in the COVID period. Maybe Dr. Karen, you you might have something to say about that. I'm not sure if it, it fits in with any particular uh, psychological paradigms. Sure it does, yeah, it does. Uh, what you're talking about, Dr. Matthew, is an experiment that actually was done in Israel, in the kibbutzim. Uh, you know, it's a kibbutz. Kibbutz is a communal was because it's changed now. The children no longer live away from their parents. The experiment didn't work. But what we know um, about these children who were not, who were brought up in children's houses where the uh, the government wasn't just the government of Israel, it was the government of the kibbutz. So here we're talking about it would be the government of Canada. Um, that the research shows that they had and this to all the kibbutz who came out there, it's not everybody, but um, more likelihood of an insecure quality of attachment versus secure quality of attachment, uh, some emotional flatness, difficulty parenting the next generation, and so on. So the experiment that we're talking about actually has been um, was done in Israel. I know there's other places that also rose children communally, where the government, whatever form of government there was. Uh, that's not helpful for children. It's the, the relationship focus now in developmental psych, at least in my area, which is social emotional, is is the uh, with the parent uh, or the primary caregiver, and that includes that that brings us to masks, for example. What's important? What is important? The open emotional expression between the young child, the young developing child, the infant. And the parent and the ability to see emotions. And so one of the things that our pupils did all over the world was they not only covered up, look at what what's my emotion? You don't know what my emotion is when I do that. So one of the things that happened is that children from infancy onward did not see human facial expression enough. Uh, in older children, they didn't see their peer expression. Social referencing is something that one does in the face, like, you know, when you're telling your child, it just looks like that, right? And your whole face makes the expression, the child knows what you're trying to say. So one breakdown in the relationship here was even the uh, the facial, the facial expression between between the parent and the child, or the infant and the child, then the teacher and the child, then the peer and the peer, and the adolescents not able to read their their peers' um, expressions. And in the communal child rearing, I mean, they did see the face, but they didn't have the parent there when you need them. The secure base is that the, the, the significant caregiver is there when you need them. So these are all dangerous things, moving parents away, giving the government or anybody um, authority, um, taking away our ability to truly engage from the age of zero onwards. Those are things that that uh, that happened and, and are a risk factor for many children. Karen, 
Karen, just a technical thing. You're echoing, so I don't know if you have speakers on or, Me? or something. Yeah. Um, I've got a question for Dr. Christian. So I, I'm interacting with a student who um, has developed perimyocarditis and was rushed to the hospital uh, by ambulance from school and uh, also some um, neurological issues and recently a seizure. And none of this student's several specialist doctors have suggested it might be the consequence of vaccination. What do you think about that in terms of providing, uh, you know, unbiased information to children? It seems very egregious, but I'm not a medical practitioner. Oh, you're muted. As part of the discussion of informed consent, uh, before Sean wanted to rein me in. Um, but um, the fact is, uh, you know, if parents, what I, was, what I was about to say before I was interrupted is uh, that if parents had actually known the risks, and that was a fundamental right of parents to know risks for informed consent, then uh, they, many of them would not have gone ahead with the vaccine. And one of the fundamental risks was, in fact, of course, the, 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 the biggest uh, thing that was obscured from the public at large by the propaganda press, as well as parents, is the risk profile of children versus, uh, versus the, the adults, right, With a, versus the elderly. Uh, there was more than a thousandfold risk of a... Uh, of an elderly person dying of COVID than somebody less than 20. That should have been told to parents too. Uh, part of the risk profile of informed consent, which should have been shared with parents, is myocarditis. But bear in mind that myocarditis is only one of several uh, uh, recorded and in both in the clinical literature as well as in, in surveillance systems like the VAERS system the vaccine adverse event reporting system. It's only one of several uh, adverse events that have been recorded right from death itself. A lot of people have died uh, after the uh, COVID vaccine because of the COVID vaccine. Uh, and then you have things like transverse myelitis, which is a serious spinal injury condition uh, and, and so on. With regard to myocarditis, most of the uh, virtually all the the papers that came out before I would say last week were what we call passive surveillance papers. So, in other words, uh, somebody goes to the hospital with symptoms, and then you know they do a, a battery of tests, and then they say you you probably have myocarditis. But there's an active surveillance system or a prospective surveillance system where uh, in anticipation of possible problems, the the investigating team carries out investigation. And uh, last week, uh, there was a study released in Switzerland, um, which showed that with the mRNA vaccine, the risk of myocarditis was 1 in 35. 
one in 35. So this was a prospective study, active surveillance, where they actually went and went and did tests on everybody who had the vaccine. And then they showed that this is the risk. Now, if you recall the 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 propaganda press and the various uh, propaganda public health officers would would tell the public that this is very rare. I challenge anybody to call one in 35 very rare or one in 250, which was the Thailand study, or one in 2000. It, it's only rare when it doesn't happen to your own child. And how can I, bad- can I, can I get a, an extra question for you, sir? Yes, of course. So I think everybody here, among us, we know that uh, physicians in, in BC and across Canada are not at liberty to discuss these things with parents. And when they do, uh, they can face uh, severe consequences. Um, they can be um, censured by the colleges of physicians and surgeons. And we've seen that many uh, physicians lose their licenses and really uh, suffer devastating uh, consequences as a result. Yeah. So now, uh, you're teaching children, and and we're recognizing this this problem where where parents are not getting the information required for informed consent, and 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 this and doctors are being pressured not to give it. What do you think then becomes the responsibility of the educator? Because of course the edu the educators are going to be slapped if they bring these things up, but then if they don't bring these things up. Is it education at all? I mean, that's that's sort of we're at this kind of threshold moment for our society where educators can't discuss anything of importance, and nor can doctors. But as an educator, what do you think the responsibility well, is? Uh, well, the fact is, uh, factual, clinical, accurate, precise information was regularly withheld from the public. For example, um, cardiologists will tell you that myocarditis is not a mild condition. It's a serious condition. Um, th th there are two studies that, that, that I can point to. One is a Korean study that came out, I believe, in 2020, that showed that the 10-year mortality of myocarditis was 25%. There was a German study that was done a little bit earlier that showed that the six-year mortality was, uh, was was close to that. It was, uh, I, I can't recall exactly, but it is something like 15%. So a lot of people who get myocarditis are going to die. Uh, this should have been told to, to parents too. And if, there, it, if this information had been accessible by uh, uh, an honest medical profession and an honest press and an honest uh, and with honest journalists, yes, teachers also, I think many of them would have come forward to protect the kids. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't for a minute believe that all teachers were complicit in this, in this, um, in this abuse of kids with masks and lockdowns and vaccines, which they don't need. But uh, I think a lot of them are misled purposely. Francis, can I ask you a different question? Because Another thing that happened was the masking. And I'm wondering, you know, if you have thoughts about what the effects of masking would have been on the kids. And then I'll also ask Karen and Matthew to chime in on that, because that that was such a significant event. I, like, I, I don't know about you guys, but that just 
I wore a mask now and again, and it just drove me crazy, and the pressure drove me crazy. But, but what do you think the effect was on on the kids and having to do that? Well, I'm going to be brief because Karen has actually done some really good work on that. And back in 2020, she pointed out um, when I, you know, when I was in the, in meetings with her and so on, how uh, children is a fallacy that children learn language from sounds, but they learn it mainly from facial expression. And she predicted at that time that that the masking fiasco would set back learning for for kids, young kids, language learning, all kinds of learning by several years. And I'm I'm just going to let Karen elaborate on that. Well, my area is more social emotional, so. Masking, I think I was talking a, a bit about that before. Um, is that me echoing again? It is. I don't know what it is. Maybe if I get closer here. All right. Um, the problem, the main problem with, with this is that you don't see the other person's emotions. Um, language, I actually did speak with a, an SLP. Hello to her. And um, there, there, I'm not sure if all speech language pathologists or if all people in cognitive psychology agree about the impact of the masks on language. Although I do believe that it helps a child to be able to see um, the movements in the mouth when they are learning language. In fact, I used to watch my granddaughter watching me as I spoke, and I often noticed how she would be watching my lips. This is true. Um, so the main problem with the facial covering is, yes, it impairs the development of emotional regulation, might impair uh, language development, but most certainly also may increase a sense of anxiety. Why? Because the facial covering for the adults as well reminded us at all times there's something bad out there. There's a monster. If it's called a virus, if it's called the principal who bullies me, as I heard cases where children felt very bullied at school, this, this thing on the face always reminded them. And so you could see how that would increase a sense of anxiety for some children. There's something bad out there, or do I have it on right? Or it smells bad, I can't take it off. Or I feel like I can't breathe. It doesn't matter if you really can or you can't. But if you're feeling, if you're a child and you're feeling you can't breathe properly and you're afraid to say something, you can see how that would increase a lot of anxiety, fear. Um, so there's multiple reasons. I'm not talking about oxygenation. That I'm not. That's not my area here to speak about. I'm speaking about from the psychological perspective, the facial covering, or I think uh, Chris Schaefer calls them. Uh, what does he call them? Breathing obstructors. Uh, he has some name that that has meaning. I think that these um, these uh, this apparatus has a lot of meaning. And we should also remember that children, especially younger children, do not have a sense of hygiene, and so they could be, you know, wiping their noses with it, or you know, what, what children do. And they were wearing this all day. So if you think about it from that perspective. Um, I don't know if I answered that question there, but. I yeah, could, you I know, as a, as a surgeon, I, uh, go ahead. So 
I mean, that's that's the question of the the effect upon the individual uh, who is who is being forced to or asked to wear the mask and who is complying with this or attempting to and, and experiencing discomfort. But there's a whole other dimension that's that's worth uh, thinking about, and that is creating uh, multiple sort of creating groupings where that person's not wearing a mask and therefore they're blameworthy. And mm -hmm. we're in the right if we discriminate against them Yes. in no uncertain terms with, with really some considerable ferocity. And I've noticed that, I mean, obviously then we have premiers in Canada and even our prime minister who they are openly, they're verbally insulting those people who are vaccine hesitant. And the, the level of, of abuse, of discrimination against, against uh, groups, um, I, I can't remember ever seeing it endorsed the way it has been in COVID. And I think that the masks were a significant part of that. And I'll just share a, a, a quick anecdote to give you a sense of, of how insidious this is. So we all know that there's the mock UN and kids per participate in it. And they, you know, there's also a mock WHO. And, uh, you know, in North Carolina, Chapel Hill hosted it this year, and the kids from all different universities uh, go there. And I was speaking with a student who was in attendance and who had some real ethical reservations about the whole thing. And one of the things that this student observed was that after a while, everybody got into the, into the, into the swing of it and started treating things almost as a game. And this was, you know, okay, per se. But when in the press conference uh, exercises, when the topic of dying children came up, everybody laughed. And this, and, and then it gets worse. Not only did everybody laugh, but then dying Jordanian children became an ongoing running joke. And I think this is indicative of now, of course, it is a joke, and it, there is humor even in, in the dark. There's dark humor. But this is indicative of a sort of, of the feeling that it is all right for us to, um, to discriminate, to isolate groups, and to consider that they are, they are sort of less deserving of protection and the harm that happens to them it should not concern us. Right. I was going to say that as a surgeon throughout my career, I wore masks. Uh, I had to, and I believed in them. And I still do for, and in a hospital environment. Okay. In a hospital environment, you have to remember that I, the nurse, the physician, medical students have very good training on bacteriology microbiology, virology, uh, what masks do, what they cannot do, how to wear a mask, when to change a mask, when a mask becomes useless, and so on. If you don't have all that training, a mask is it actually can be worse than useless, because as Karen mm -hmm. said, uh, kids, I mean, we all saw how kids would, you know, have these soaked masks, would then put it in their pockets, and then take yes. it out again and use the same thing again. That actually increases the infection rate for, for themselves and for others. Uh, and so if there was good evidence, actually, m most of us, uh, if it was a deadly disease, which it wasn't, uh, it, the, the disease had no risk for children or negligible risk for children. If it, uh, you know, 
was actually uh, an extremely uh, serious disease which was killing kids and masks could protect it. Of course, we medical people would have been the first to say, yes, of course, wear it. But there was no evidence. There still isn't. In fact, the big Cochrane study uh, of a few months ago showed that when all the studies were put together, there is no evidence that masks prevent COVID or, you know, prevent the transmission of COVID. So I think there was a series of, uh, you know, extremely serious uh, missteps. Some of it in the initial stages might have been from ignorance. Uh, I'm willing to uh, say that everybody was trying to do their best, and 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 a few of them might have been very uh, active in promoting the mass, thinking it'll work. But the data came out very quickly, and it should have been obvious that children and 99.999% of adults who are not in the medical field will not know how to use a mask properly, and therefore they were useless. May I add something? Exactly what, what uh, Dr. Francis was saying. You know that Sick Kid, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, put out a booklet in June, I think it was May or June 2020, and it was great. It was about kids going back to school. And they wrote that the masks, that children will not have the tools to use the masks. Uh, they talked about other issues that increase in anxiety. And from a developmental perspective, it was an outstanding booklet. It reflected developmental principles, exactly. And then a month or two later, it was taken away and another booklet was taken out. I don't know why, who stopped it, different authors. And in the newer booklet, it said, different people think differently about masks, but we think they should be used and so on. There was no evidence behind it. And most certainly it did not take into account children's developmental capacity to use masks properly. Most certainly adults didn't. If I'm not mistaken, one should put on a mask straight way and throw immediately and so on. But when you saw these people walking around and the way people were using them and the way children were using them and the thoughts that would go with using a, a facial covering, that's what's really important. And Matthew, I was going to answer, you know, they, these children looking about the thoughts that go with the mask and those who don't, you know, before that would be children who don't wear the cool pants or children who don't listen to the teacher. They're the bad kids. There's the good kids and the bad kids. And they're, they're internalizing this notion, kids who don't wear masks or their parents don't wear masks, they're the bad kids. And then instead of the teacher discussing it, and maybe some teachers did, and those of you who did, good for you, but talk about the fact that people have different views. That's part of teaching children moral development. Um, children also saw perhaps the teacher bullying, or before I said some principles, uh, this, these are based on stories I heard. So of course they're gonna make jokes about children dying and they become immune to these, these thoughts that some people, are, or, or they internalize that some people are less important than others. And you know, like, like um, we all, all the adults heard, it was on the news. Didn't somebody say, our, our prime minister say that the anti people who don't get vaccinated are not allowed on trains, buses, and didn't I, it was a statement. Yeah. To that. Well, you heard that as well. So of course they're going to internalize that it's okay 
to talk badly about some people. Some people are not worth as much as other people. I, I, I was shocked. Like, Matthew, I hadn't heard that story from you before about, you know, kids laughing at a, you know, a, a mock who conference about people dying. And one thing that came to mind when you were talking about that and just following Karen up on what you're identifying also is when we were in the Winnipeg hearings, one of the things we did for each one of the provinces is we took video clips from, you know, the public health officer or the premier, you know, from what they said during COVID. And one thing that came up um, in Manitoba is they, they basically were encouraging people to snitch on others and they called them ambassadors. Like, so you're to be a good ambassador. I mean, it's almost like our kids were in East Germany. And then remember, um, uh, I think it was Adrian Arsenault and Rodney Palmer, you know, showed us that piece in his testimony where she does this piece about, you know, what do you do if your Uncle Bob starts talking about, you know, the lab leak theory or something like that. And, you know, and then they have some person, you know, explaining to kids how you kind of deflect this. So we're basically teaching our kids to ignore parents. And our kids also would have heard, you know, there were calls to put unvaccinated people in camp or denying them healthcare, like let them die at the hospital. And then our prime minister saying, you know, how long are we going to tolerate these people? What what do you guys think the effect of that is? Like Matthew, you were kind of starting to talk about, I, I guess the effect is, is, is it's okay to vilify people. I'm not sure. This is like, and if, by what you brought up and if the if the education system doesn't if the education system doesn't lay out for children in a very clear way what what constitutes civil discourse and how how communities within our society should be governing themselves if instead it just it just parrots the type of divisive rhetoric that we heard from from trudeau like this is a fringe minority, you don't have to listen to anything they're saying, you don't have to debate them. Or when we saw the, the leaders debate, the federal leaders debate, they, they refused to answer any questions. All of the leaders together refused to answer any questions tabled by any of the rebel news uh, journalists, who are the only ones who are actually asking challenging questions about COVID. So the idea there was you don't even have to talk with them. You can just shut them out. And that's what's happened across the board in our society. And then what we've done is we've, we've taught kids at school that that's an appropriate response. And so what uh, Dr. Christian has, has brought up is, and he has this magnificent recall of all of these studies that are so incredibly helpful. And if parents had access to them, you know, they would be able to, to be advocates for their children. But we haven't had any discussion of this in, in the schools and and the kids don't haven't therefore been given the tools to determine well what is reliable information in in this in this environment where pharmaceutical companies are paying for a lot of studies but there are ways to sort of parse it there there are ways to find good reliable information and we simply haven't addressed it in schools and so the kids are i mean what they're left with is is just this basic us and them and they're wrong and we don't need any evidence and so a total breakdown of civil discourse and the the consequence is a loss of ethical uh, moorings 
And the eventual consequence may be that now everybody is ready not only to accept, but to call for the internment of people in things like camps when they don't when they don't fall in line. And we don't want our kids to be that. We don't want our kids snitching on their parents. Right. And, and that's the kind of consequence that we see down the road. I think you're going in that direction, maybe, Sean. Well, a, a little bit. And and um, Dr. Christian, like, am I correct? Like, kids don't even develop the frontal lobe until they're in well into their twenties, and that affects our ability even to empathize. Like, I, I'm, I'm just well, concerned. You know, ethically. Uh, uh, my view, of course, is that that kids in our society now are not being allowed to mature soon enough. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, they're still sort of mollycoddled and when they are, you know, in their 30s. But uh, going back to the snitching thing, which is shocking, it is actually uh, a well-known tactic of totalitarian societies. There was a saying in communist Russia, it went like this, uh, to betray your neighbor is uh, a is is a sacred duty, but to betray your own family is the highest duty of all, and millions of people actually believe that. Uh, the propaganda was so effective that uh, that people actually regularly uh, snitched, uh, as you called it, Sean, on their on their own family, uh, and and sent many people of their own family to the gulag or to torture and imprisonment and execution and so on. So uh, that, that, that kind of snitching uh, was practiced, as you know, during uh, this whole uh, debacle of the COVID management by our authorities. It was encouraged. And undoubtedly, uh, it was practiced in our schools because uh, we are supposed to be role models for our kids, and if parents and teachers encourage snitching, of course they're going to do it. Uh, that that makes it uh, an, an egregious violation of the rights of the child, uh, because if you don't give the child proper instruction uh, in good conduct, in in good manners, in the way they ought to treat other people, uh, in in, in you know this information that the studies that I've quoted, the job of physicians, public health officials, nurses, teachers is to actually get that information and to make it available to the public and to kids in language they can understand. I did that routinely for informed consent before I did major surgery on patients. I wouldn't quote you know six different studies and tell them about significance and p values and you know, hazard ratios and all these other things which we are trained to do, I would, I would take that, those studies and translate it in simple language to my patients. And that was what was expected of public health. They had the data. They had the studies. They refused to tell the public the truth. And that was, I think it was unconscionable. Well, there was... Um... This isn't about children, but there was a program called uh, the Nudge Program or the Psychological Mechanism. And part of that program, uh, people can read about it. It's a whole other, whole other evening to talk about. But uh, information was provided to us, the people, um, 
using behavioral engineering or behavioral science. You can read about Thaler and Sunstein's work on the Nudge program. People are more interested in that. But, um, and in terms, can I answer about the brain development in children? Okay, so the task, um, the developmental task post birth is to create synapses between, synapses between the nerves and to do pruning. In other words, to create this, the underlying structure of the brain. And the brain develops most rapidly in the first 45 months of life. First 45 months of life. And so going back to the facial coverings again, if the child doesn't have accurate interaction, because they found that interaction is the, and, and particularly secure quality of interaction, is the most important factor that affects development. And the brain continues to develop approximately until, well, all our lives, our brains are neuro, there's neuroplasticity, our, brain, our brains change. But until age 24, children are still uh, young children, students. Sometimes I did feel like students were still children in university. Sorry to the students out there, but some do feel that way. And, and from, a, from a brain perspective, um, the brain, the, the prefrontal cortex, and on all the areas with decision-making and so on are still developing until then. But think about the fact that the first four years of life are the most important, or the, or the time that the brain develops most rapidly. And if we, we put children in an environment, such as children who are in daycare, daycare centers, at the time when their brain was developing most rapidly, and they didn't see people's faces, and they weren't allowed to move. You know, if you've seen the pictures, how they had circles where the children can only move in those areas, or they could only play with certain children. And we're doing this to children at the time when brain development is most rapid. We are altering the structure of the brain. If we're looking at trauma, prior to 2020, we would all go, in my area, go to conferences, and learn a lot about trauma and trauma-informed care. And trauma also affects the way that the brain is structured, the brain is built. And so we were engaging in actions that would increase children's risk for trauma, anxiety, and reducing um, protective factors such as ongoing interaction, inclusive of facial features, ongoing movement, children in early the early years, um, uh, move, you know, the whole body, they developed their whole body. And we were stopping mobility, we were closing parks. So we, the, the acts that took place put many children at risk for reduced brain development uh, if we compare it to the way that they might have developed if things had just continued as they were prior to the crisis in 2020. I, I had heard, and and I don't recall where I heard this, that you know some that some age groups of children we've really stunted even their IQ to a measurable degree. Have any of you heard of that? I saw one study. Oh, and I can't remember. I have it referenced somewhere where um, now I think it was the CDC, but I am not certain. I can look it up where they where they noted that children were developing at different young children were developing at, at different rates. I could look that up, but I it would take me 
time to look that up. On a really basic level, um, there's there's no question that if you if you encourage an entire generation to accept dogmatic scientific assertions without actually allowing for a proper forum uh, for debate, then you're going to stifle that entire generation's ability to think critically about any matter whatsoever. And the only lesson that you'll actually impart to them is um, you need approval and compliance is excellence. Like you excel by complying. Uh, just stick with the right group. And that's not at all the that's not at all the type of society we want. And going back to what uh, Dr. Karen uh, was just saying, um, so trauma, of course, affects the way we interact with others, and and necessarily is going to have a detrimental effect on the way we build communities. Because of course, communities are are based around uh, uh, relations of mutuality. I think that one of the things that we really need to concentrate on going forward is we've got to reestablish somehow. We've got to reestablish the parameters for debate and dialogue, um, but also respectful debate and dialogue. Because right now you can see with uh, things like the pride movement and everything and the objections to drag story hours, well, there are problems there that need to be objected to. But what you see in the media is suddenly it, it has become okay to attack the homosexual community. Notice we've, oh, they, this is a community that has gradually gained acceptance and, and rights and has been accorded rights. And now it is becoming acceptable within certain circles, even within certain circles that are dedicated to ethical thinking, to claw rights back away from them. And so this is very dangerous territory. And I think this, it links to, what, to a lot of what uh, Dr. Christian was saying. You have to start with for education you have to start with being informed about the issues that you're opposing or promoting and one of that it, you need to know the facts you need to know the applicable laws and standards and you need to be able to identify the solutions required and the means to achieve those goals right that's just basic critical thinking and it's gone and the next part and i i i'll, I'll just shut I'll, I'll stop here but the next part is all of your arguments they cannot be of value to you as a member of the community unless they're grounded and rooted in empathy. And I don't think that that's right. something that's lost on us now. Back to the second commandment. I mean, that was the foundation of our legal system, both civil and criminal, that we were to treat others as we wanted to be treated. And we used to teach that morality I mean, the school system in some countries, Western democracies, was set up to basically educate on Christian principles. And we used to teach that, no, you, you treat others as you want to be treated, which it, then would, it would flow from that, that you, you, know, you want your voice heard and you want to be able to have you know, respectful debate and all of those things. And I, I think that one of the biggest problems, and it's just been exacerbated because we now have this censorship culture and we have this culture where you cannot basically go against the official narrative <clears throat> on any topic but you know writ large on covid and i think that's that's shown how dangerous it is to move away from that christian basis that we had where our entire system was based on the second commandment i saw that you got interested in that francis do you want to well in i <laughs> thanks sean i uh, you know i I don't think there was ever a time in our history in Western civilization when 
you know, we could be called a, a, a kind of a Christian country, for example. Um, I don't. I don't even think. I, I mean, we know that. Uh, let's say a hundred years ago, not everybody was a Christian. Not everybody believed in God, but there was a Christian consensus to society. People lived by certain Christian rules, like the rule, the, like the golden rule, uh, which is, of course, found in some other religions too. But there were the 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 the, the desire to do unto others as you would do unto yourself. But I have to say, you know, the 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 taking away of Christian principles from our school system, where children go to learn, uh, the takeover of our schools and our university did not happen in the COVID era. Uh, it happened. Uh, it, it, it's it was a process long in the making. It was actually directed uh, by some people whose very uh, philosophies and ways of, uh, of, of writing and teaching in the universities made it very clear that they want to destroy the system as it exists and replace it with a postmodern view of the world. So that happened in the 1950s. And by the 1980s, the takeover at the university was complete. So the teachers coming out of our universities, whether they teach in rural areas or in urban areas, are all these the types who have been taught that there is no objective truth. It is as you define it. It is my truth. That is uh, the heart of postmodern philosophy, which is there is no objective truth. There is no truth that lies beyond yourself. Uh, for our Christian history, it, it meant God uh, was the ultimate source of truth. Uh, uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and uh, you know that 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 idea that truth exists outside yourself and is objective uh, was replaced by this idea that truth is a pliable thing which you can define for yourself. Uh, and that started in the 1950s with the uh, with you know Derrida and Foucault and and Lacan and the Frankfurt School and uh, all these guys who who's Basic aim was to destroy the, uh, the 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 structure of our education as it exists and replace it with a pliable version of truth. And that's why even young people, you know, if you if you confront them with objective evidence, even about COVID, some, sometimes they'll turn around and say, "Okay, that's your truth. This is my truth." This this actually uh, was something that uh, that that happened not during the COVID era. It, 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 the takeover of our universities was complete in the 1980s. I don't know if anyone else wants to chime in, but it's interesting, Francis. So I'm 58, and when I started elementary school, we said the Lord's Prayer every morning. That's how we started the day. And if you had an assembly, like we had an assembly every Friday, and somebody would be tasked with reading a, a Bible verse out of it. And I think it was, you know, so grade one, grade two, by grade three, we didn't say the Lord's Prayer anymore. And, you know, probably by, you know, grade seven, grade eight, we didn't, no one was reading the Bible in assembly. Like, so it's just interesting that I, you know, witnessed us kind of getting this out of the system. And I went to, I started university in 1984, and I was actually shocked at how 
it seemed that university professors would go out of their way to denigrate God. I mean, like take a philosophy course or a you know history of science course or whatever. It was actually quite shocking how you know in an, an unobjective way um, they would teach you to hate God. So I I think you've you've really you've hit something fundamental that has kind of led us to this place. Well, can I say? Yeah, jump in, I? jump in, Karen. Okay, sure. First of all, I did find this study on the change. It's called COVID-19 pandemic, um, impact of COVID-19 pandemic on early child development. And the authors are uh, Dione et al. And the year, I think, is 2022, if, that, if people are interested. Now, back to the universities. Um, so there is. That's, there's, I mean, there's not there. And there are more studies that I read. So there are studies coming out about the changes. And I was teaching in the university until not too long before this. Um, I, I was fine, sorry, that there was no religion because we had students from all over the world with multiple different religions and we had to respect everybody. But only some people were respected. This is what I, I saw some of the changes. And we had um, equity, diversity, and inclusion. This was became a really big concept in the universities and I think also in, with younger children. And those are great concepts as long as they apply to everybody and they didn't apply to everybody. And not everybody's equity was taken into account and not, and not everybody was included. So it's, it's, you know, not everybody's religious. And when you're teaching in a university or in a school, you have to respect that as well. By the same token, you have to respect those people who are religious and do believe in God, and God is central to their life. Um, so we have a bit of hypocrisy happening in the educational system, from what I can see, and that is that equity, diversity, and inclusion, which are great concepts, do not apply to all, in my experience. And I think, you know, another part of this is that, I mean, it's really important in Canada to look at the way in which um, Christianity is coming under fire. Um, and partly in the COVID moment, this seems to have been as a result of the fact that people meet in churches. I mean, the word church etymologically goes back to uh, the idea of gathering. So people gather together and, of course, they discuss. And the one of the primary functions of, of um, any of the uh, religions, but certainly of the Abrahamic uh, religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Islam um, one of their main functions is, is to create community. And so, so Christianity is coming under fire and the idea of God is coming under fire. But for those people in, you know, in, in the immediate audience who don't sort of identify or don't use these terms, it's entirely possible to, to discuss these values without actually having a specific Abrahamic uh, uh, terminology. We can talk about affective understanding, right? As opposed to intellectual, affective understanding and empathy. And, you know, empathy is, is not sympathy. It's not patting somebody on the head and saying it sucks to be you, but it's actually feeling what the other person feels. And of course, that this mirrors very closely the, 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 the second commandment. But affective understanding, the importance about affective understanding, it's not a concept that we discuss or even sort of 
recognize in our culture um, the difference between intellectual understanding. It's in your it's in your brain. It's you know, it's a it's a tool that you're honing. Affective understanding is transformative, and and where you experience it is in your relationships with other people. You don't have to be uh, Jewish or Christian or Muslim to recognize that um, that the the greatest value in your life comes from the positive relationships you have with others, and that and that everything you can do to to sort of connect with others and to and to treat them in a way that sort of that transforms you into someone who is better able to support them while also supporting yourself. We recognize this. We we in, we instinctively uh, recognize this as as a deep and powerful good, and it's it's a it's a sort of a religious good even for the secular who have no inclination towards uh, organized religion whatsoever. I just wanted to put that little note in. As a as a way of including, can I can I can I answer part of that? In a, you're you're talking a lot about empathy and affect, and I'm sorry I have to refer to the facial coverings again. That interferes. That was one way that official um, procedures or measures interfered with children's ability to develop empathy because you develop empathy by realizing you have emotions and by reading emotions in others. But there are other ways. Um, part of the nudge program or the psychological mechanisms used to change us was to make people see us and them. And it started with essential workers and not essential. Um, maskers and non-maskers vaxxers and anti-vaxxers and the children heard all of these terms so if we're looking again at children we had various ways that we are interfering with the development of empathy which is exactly the way you defined it um matthew is um the ability to understand you don't have to feel the emotions of the other but you understand them and you understand them well enough to validate their feelings and to understand their perspective perspective taking is a very important a developmental task, the capacity to understand the perspective of, of another. And so the events that took place in the past three years, the facial covering, the names, essential, non-essential, and so on, social responsibility. Again, this went first to the parents, but then it trickled down to the children. People who are socially responsible were those who followed. And those who didn't follow and thought differently were not socially responsible. And all of this affects how children's ability to respect others, to understand others, to think, first of all, to understand that others have different perspectives and that's fine. No discussion, no acceptance, no role modeling, no seeing that the adults who were teaching them were respecting their parents' diverse views or their diverse views. So empathy definitely was one of the, um, the victims of the, the measures that affected adults and not only trickled down to children, but affected them directly by impairing their ability to engage openly with others. And I want to say again, it's not all children because some children were not exposed to, to facial coverings and some children had parents who, who explained things to them and so on, but the risk was there. And, you know, something that Sean brought up, uh, brought up, Sean, something about uh, 
teenagers and the courtship and years and where you want to impress other teenagers and you want to get uh you know uh, we all went through that era and for them to be forced to wear masks was really cruel it was uh it was unconscionable really and you know even more tragic is when i go to the grocery store and there are young people obviously completely healthy people who are still wearing masks uh in the counter and i make it a point to go up to them and say that you know it doesn't really protect you and uh you don't need to be wearing this and some of them do take it out some of them say you know i know what you're saying is true but i've just gotten used to it which is even more tragic mm -hmm. uh and and this is because of the conditioning that went on in teenagers brains that masks are somehow protective which they're not um you know, you're saying that that the that the, the degrading of our education system at universities goes back to the '50s, and this you, we get this kind of relativization of of values, the idea that there's no objective truth, that there's nothing that can even be treated as a practical objective truth, you know. And of course, we've always known that that um, the area of of human relations, the political sphere, is a subjective sphere. And that we are always dealing with imperfection. So you know, this this idea that the entire environment is in flux that's just part that's that's just part of the environment you're dealing with in the in the social sciences and, and the arts. It's but what we've done is we've taken this extra step and as though pretending that because of this sort of slippage. There's nothing that can be done with any certainty, and there's certainly, and there's no way that you can put your finger on right or wrong. And I think that's it's the impairment of the ability to make judgments regarding what is right or wrong. We've got so we've got the corruption of the idea of the socially responsible, and they've become reduced to those who follow. But look at our education system. Look at what it asks kids to do. You sit for eight hours a day. And then we reward a tiny number of people. We give them stickers. We give them. They, we put them on the honor roll, and they and we accustom them to think that they're better, that they're being rewarded because they deserve it, and that and that this system is good. That they just have to work in the system and excel in the system, and everything's done. They don't have to contest that system and say, "I don't want to be up here receiving a prize." while my friends are back there in the audience. And then the rest of the, of the class is being accustomed to the idea that they are second tier or third tier, and they just have to learn to put up with it and recognize that the good things are never going to be for them. Well, you know, in, in, a, in any room, I'm surrounded by things that I can't make. I can't, I don't know how to fix them. I don't know how to make them. There is nothing in my environment doesn't involve collaboration. I'm, I'm immersed in a collaborative environment. So the idea of, of isolating individuals and rewarding them for their excellence over their peers, even that, there's something sort of fundamentally skewed about this. And one thing that's absolutely sure, we don't encourage kids to, to question the system they're being educated within. And we're going to have to start because mm -hmm. there, there are so many ways that systematically we've been led astray to the point where our ethical faculties 
appear to be, you know, handicapped. We're you know, this we're idea that, uh, uh, this idea that um, you can make rules in a moral vacuum is also part of that postmodern uh, way of thinking, which is, was foisted onto us um, probably earlier than the 50s, but the, it, it became a turbocharged movement in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, when speaking about medical ethics for uh, as far as children go, for example, uh, people started asking the question, where uh, of physicians, uh, where is your Hippocratic oath? Now, what most of the public don't know is that most uh, students in North America, medical students in North America when they graduate do not take the Hippocratic oath. Uh, the last survey that was done showed that less than 40% of medical schools uh, require uh, medical students when they graduate to take the Hippocratic Oath. Some medical schools, prominent ones in the United States, ask students to write their own oath, which is also part of the postmodern idea that you can create your own truth. But if you look at the history of medicine over thousands of years, starting with Hippocrates himself. Uh, in the original Hippocrat Hippocratic Oath, there, was, um, there were multiple Greek gods mentioned. And in the Christian era, the, 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 the oath was prominent in saying that they will not, that physician will not try to play God. And then you come to, the, to what has been called the golden age of Islamic medicine, uh, between about 700 AD and 1100 AD. And uh, Al-Rawawi's oath talks constantly about Allah and how the, as a servant of Allah and, the, and, and being submissive to the will of God, uh, the, the physician must do his best to have, uh, have a, uh, a, a system of medicine that is full of kindness, compassion, and accountability to Allah. And the... And then you come to Thomas Sydenham, who was a Puritan and um, who, who, who actually was a, the, the, the term primum non nocere is not from Hippocrates, it's from the works of Thomas uh, Sydenham, who, uh, who said in his uh, writings that the reason a doctor has to be ethical is because he's caring for creatures for people for who have been considered worthy enough that the son of god died for them so in in all these instances your the the ethical system looks at a source of truth beyond itself um uh, the the uh, if you look at uh, jewish medicine with maimonides maimonides was a was a rabbi as well as a, uh, a, a as a doctor and his oath the oath of Maimonides is full of allusions to God. And all that is gone. Instead, we have been encouraged to define truth for ourselves in any way which we want. And, uh, and, and therefore, this idea that, you know, everybody was taking the Hippocratic oath is not true. Uh, most physicians do not take the Hippocratic oath or any oath for that matter. First of all, Francis, that that was fascinating. So, um, but yeah. what 
and I'll let you go in a second, Karen, but the thing that jumped out at me is, is, you know, here we are having a discussion about, you know, whether or not there should be objective truth taught in the school or, or not, and the effect of, of a decision not to move where we don't have objective truth. And aren't we putting the cart before the horse? Because what if there is objective truth? Right, because even that we have this discussion presupposes that that there there isn't. If there is objective truth, then you know should there even be a discussion? Like it's just it's it's interesting from a legal philosophical perspective. Like I mean, I think I think that we're better off as a as a um, as a culture if we have objective truth, which is something we define ourselves by, and and you know if there is no real objective truth, then we decide which ones that we're going to use as a culture to, you know, kind of best move forward and just change those very carefully. But if there is objective truth, you would think it would flow from that. There's danger then in not teaching that objective truth. Yeah, that is, uh, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a important legal question as well. Uh, but, um, when you when a physician uh, with some humility recognizes that there is truth that lies outside yourself uh, he or she is able i think to keep refining we will we will never know the complete truth but what we uh, what we mean by objective truth is verifiable truth okay so there are there are things that can be verified. For example, it can be verified that um, that that all male boys, I mean boys who are who are male sex, and girls who are considered a female sex have different chromosomes. That can be verified again and again and again. Uh, the the chromosome structure in every cell of a boy is is XY. Of a girl, it's XX. That's verifiable objective truth. Now, um, if somebody comes to me and says, actually, I don't believe that objective truth because my truth tells me this, this XY boy is actually an XX girl, uh, I think that there's a problem there. So when we say objective truth, it's truth that can be verified. Uh, by the by the methods of science often, but not necessarily the methods of science. Uh, there can be anthropology, histor his historical verification, and so, and so on. But verifiable truth is what we call objective truth, not ultimate truth, because that is something that we all aspire to, and that is something that that should be recognized resides outside ourselves. Um, okay, I have two <laughs> two answers. One, according to okay, objective truth, and it is my microphone. I don't know why I have nothing else open. It, it maybe so we'll all, we'll all mute while you talk and see if that helps. Okay, thanks. So, in terms of teaching students, I'm, I'm thinking of teaching uh, at a higher level, and um, you really want to promote critical thinking. And it's interesting, it's interesting that I, I really would respect students' diverse views, uh, but at the same time, we would ask them to bring reference lists and citations. So if you can put a good argument together 
And I guess you're bringing in, we would call it evidence, which might or might not be objective truth, then that's that's the goal of our student is to teach. So of course, like the call phone rings now as I'm talking. I'm sorry. I hope it will just end. I'll just hang it up. There. Sorry. It was my daughter, of course. Um, so 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 it's not really clear if you're teaching students if you want them to only have one truth. And one thing that we always did in academia is we enjoyed the growth of new ideas. And how did we build new ideas? We allowed discussion. And science is the same way. Things change. Can you prove your change? And that's what stopped now. You're not allowed to talk about diverse views anymore. You're still, you're, I guess, with the younger children as well. There's no discussion of diverse views. So critical thinking means taking different ideas and building them together to build a theory, demonstrating and explaining the components of your theory. So, um, and I guess you could say that some educators and educators in the universities um, might not believe that there's objective truth. And I wanted to, can I go back to the ethics for a moment? All right. So. Um, I really appreciated what, what you spoke about, Francis, and, and the history as well about um, the development of ethics in, in, in healthcare. Um, I also rely on Beauchamp and Childress, for example, uh, the four principles that have been lost at this time, which are autonomy, uh, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And let's look at the, these principles from a parent's perspective. So I'm looking at it now as a parent and, and as a grandparent. Autonomy means that I I'm worthy enough to make my own decisions. And because I'm worthy enough to make my own decisions, the healthcare provider is obligated to tell me everything. In, in, in other words, informed decision-making and informed consent. So parents now, from, from this model as well, you know, you were looking at it from the Hippocratic Oath, but from a model using the four principles of, of uh, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice, we were also, we the public, so those of you who are the public, note that we the public, our rights as parents, grandparents, educators, was not fulfilled because they did not tell us everything they knew. Beneficence, they didn't give us everything. They didn't provide us with other ways of making sure our children were safe. Uh, they did some things that might have hurt our children. And there wasn't real equity because if I'm a person who doesn't speak English well and can understand the TV, then I can't make good decisions for my child. Um, if I'm a person of elder age and can't use the computer, I couldn't get to information and so on. So from in terms of the Hippocratic Oath, things just pure Hippocratic Oath without the other ethics, we, the public, our rights as mothers, fathers, grandparents, we could not make good decisions for our children or as educators. And also if we're looking at those principles, those principles were also violated. And I think every healthcare professional should know those four principles. And I don't think that they did at, during these, I don't think that everyone did during these past three years. It's, you know, just chiming in from a legal perspective. So 
because you were approaching it from an ethical perspective, but you know, legally we have codified this right for people to have informed consent. Yes. And yeah. so we've so we've chosen just because of our past experience and you know historically quite recent experience um, to privilege people's right to to be informed so that they can make those choices. So it's it even goes further. There's legal obligations. I don't understand how the you know colleges of physicians and surgeons actually participated in undermining this right for consent and how our regulatory body health canada undermined it because they were not being truthful even with sharing with people that these vaccines weren't proved under a test that even mentioned safety or even mentioned efficacy let alone requiring such proof and we know from court affidavits that and cross examinations that you know It just, it wasn't there. And so this messaging, it's just interesting. I've, I've never found myself in such a situation where I, I can't point to a single institution that I think acted according to the mores and ethics that we anticipated they would through this experience. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I I, um, I think with, with the colleges and with fellow physicians, um, Many of them, uh, the, my fellow physicians, many of them did know what what the, what verifiable science was. Uh, I think most physicians do realize that science is never settled, and 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 the term that uh, that that was bandied about by public health guys, Fauci and so on, was this, that this is settled science, which is just the opposite of science. Science is not static; it moves forward sometimes it uh, obviously moves backward but i think most physicians know that that is uh, the construct of science that there has to be debate there has to be a refining of truth um the point i was making of course is that that becomes impossible if you don't uh, acknowledge a source of ultimate truth uh, which lies beyond yourself. And for us, for me, it is Christ himself. For other people, it might be Allah or um, uh, Jehovah God. Uh, but it has to be something that is bigger, beyond and above yourself. And then you can keep going towards a, a, a better and better idea of truth. The great scientists realize that too. But in, in the COVID era, I think what happened is uh, medical students were, have been conditioned for many years to go by guidelines. And, and I noticed that because I've been teaching medical students for most of my career. And I noticed that about 20 years ago, the doctor-patient individual relationship, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of talk about it, but more, much of that was being replaced by guidelines, which were algorithmic things. If this happens, you do that. If that happens, you do this. If this does not happen, you go back to this. And if they didn't know those algorithmic guidelines, they would fail their exams. And my, a lot of my task as an, you know, teaching medical students would be to, 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 to ask my medical students to critique those guidelines. Because it's, it's common knowledge that uh, that big pharma, for example, has a big influence on these guidelines. Many of the guys who write these guidelines are 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 funded by big pharma. Uh, 
So for about 20 years, medical students were conditioned to go by guidelines. And when the public health guy said, this is the guideline, everybody said, oh, we must follow the guidelines without critical thinking. Mm. But it was, it, was, it, it, was some, it was many years in the making. And it, it didn't come as a surprise to me at all. It's interesting how um, sometimes really good ideas lead us to areas that, that are actually worse off than if we hadn't done it. Because when you're talking about guidelines, like, so, yeah, so now if somebody shows up at a hospital presenting with a heart attack, like, you do this, you do this, like, there's actually, you know, a pathway that you follow. And on the one hand, that can lead to really good outcomes for that patient. And overall, you know, better outcomes for the group of patients that show up presenting with a heart attack. But now we also find ourselves in a situation where basically the government is, you know, placing physicians, like I think in British Columbia, you know, with their new legislation, where, I mean, literally you'll be professionally disciplined if you don't follow treatment directions from the government. And how, how can that be lead to better outcomes? So it's just, it's interesting that accepting that, you know, the pathway model has led us, you know, really to a bad place. And it doesn't mean we should be discarding the pathway model. But, you know, the point that you raised, like when you personally taught students, you would ask them to be critical. I, you know, I think that's something that that has to be almost focused on when we go down this road. But it's just interesting because, you know, the, the intention was good. What you bring up, Sean, about about BC, I mean, we've got Bill 36 is passed, and so it's the Health Professions and Occupations Act. And one of the most uh, one of the most horrifying aspects of this of this act is that um, we're going to have. I mean, it's already it's already passed. It's not enforced, but we're going to have the Minister of Health who's able to delegate the authority to create guidelines, to change guidelines, to impose discipline upon physicians. And the, the health minister, who is not himself a physician, who does not, um, who is not a qualified medical professional, is now delegating these responsibilities, these powers to people. And competence is not a requirement of that delegation. And so you've got doctors taking their marching orders from people who have not had medical training. And that absolutely shouldn't be happening. And that's that's one issue. And, and another thing, though, about the the bigger picture and everything, whether we're talking about whether we're talking about Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, you know, one of the common features there in terms of their their identification of the bigger picture is is you recognize it, um, you experience it as love and compassion. I mean, I'm I'm reminded of all kinds of Sufi stories that that again and again repeat the idea that if you're looking to experience to uh, witness, to uh, to come face to face with the with the face of God, that's in human beings. You find that in in you find that in in the empathetic encounter of the loving encounter of other human beings, and so, and I because I say this because I keep playing a bit the devil's advocate and and stepping back away from religious discourse, but that's not because I don't think that the that the Jewish Christian and Muslim traditions have a great deal to offer. I think they're incredible treasure troves of ethical thinking, and they're absolutely fascinating. I think that we need to spend a lot of time, 
you know, working through them. But in terms of your own wheelhouse, Sean, I think that for, you know, when we're talking about educating children and, and establishing practical objective truth and civil discourse, the courtroom procedure, it, you know, may, may actually already be established that can help us. I mean, it's, we've got the trial process can be taken as a model for informed debate. You've got preparation, pleadings, presentation, challenges, submissions. And what that means is, so it requires extensive preparation. You need to be informed. And then you've got to present things in a coherent manner. And then, and then those things are challenged in open civil debate. They're argued. And then you've got to have informed decision-making. And in the end, in, in the end, you're going to have acceptance of an outcome, acceptance of a judgment that's based on a fair determination of facts and a correct interpretation of the law, which can be shared standards. So I think we already have these tools in place. Sorry, that was a bit long. Well, no, no, but but you're raising an interesting point. And I, you know, here I hear Francis talking about how pathways have led us into a place where you know physicians really aren't um, <clears throat> aren't aren't acting as physicians anymore, as professionals that are are just making the decision for what's best with their parents. And you're saying, well, we've got this model with the courts, but somehow we've we've gotten off the rails there, like the 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 leading decision um is the ontario court of like dealing with covid right now like this so there's a lot of parents that disagreed should should we get the child vaccinated should we not and there's just been thousands of family court cases and you know in in english canada the largest province is ontario and there the ontario court of appeal in cg versus gah basically said that if health canada you know says something uh, and in this case on the vaccine that that is prima facie evidence that you know they health canada has said it's safe and effective and so the starting point then is is the other parent has so the parent that says i want to follow health canada they say the vaccine safe and effective well that's now the truth in that court and the other parent has to show you know call a whole bunch of people to show that that isn't the case and you know i'm i'm wondering well isn't this interesting because there's now a number of countries that do not allow children to be vaccinated and yet because canada's regulator has said well you can not that you have to but you can it's safe and effective um and here we have other countries that have even banned it like let alone letting parents decide it, you you can't even do it so somehow our court system has gotten to the point where it is basically accepting the government pathway. And this is this has got to be a failing on the part of the judges, right? I mean, this judges are an incredibly privileged group of people and who've been who've spent their entire their entire careers making enormous amounts of money with tremendous uh, privileges, you know, the packages that that come with the, that employment, and then they're being kowtowed to. And I think that there's a kind of there's a sort of hubristic complacence in, 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 the, in the judiciary. But that doesn't mean that the legal procedure, right, oh, isn't already, I, it's a, it's a well-established thing. I, I think, and we're, we're way off topic, so we'll have to <laughs> rein it in. But I think, I think what the problem is, and what's happened in the court has happened, you know, in the medical system. So you're talking about Bill C-36 in BC, which, basically is transferring power to make medical decisions to the government. So it's taking it away from healthcare practitioners, including the medical doctors. 
and and giving it to government. And I think that has happened in the court system, but in subtle ways. So, you know, we've got professional Department of Justice and an attorney general who's a member of the government who directs both police and court policy. And, you know, we've got the appointment of judges by governments and then slowly and slowly and slowly, we've had, you know, government including judges in, you know, well, in, in COVID. So chief justices were involved in, you know, meetings with government officials on COVID. And, and Lord knows what they were told, but it's become cozier and cozier where courts, I think just subtly and subconsciously judges now feel they're part of the government as opposed to being something separate that's meant to be between the citizen government but not privilege either one. And so somehow our whole culture, and it starts in the schools, has has been sabotaged literally where we're we're taught to just rely and defer to government. Absolutely. And it showed me one area, one area in history where the government's, you know, kind of been the best source of managing something or best source of information. Like I bet you none of us can come up with one. Now, with health, with regard to Health Canada, uh, there was a uh, a very interesting paper that came out in British Medical Journal last year, uh, and the title of the paper I was I believe was "Who is funding the regulators?" And it's facts like these I think judges should be made aware of because uh, I have a little bit of sympathy for judges because they don't they don't have medical training. And much of the expert opinion that's presented to them is couched in extremely technical language, which they don't want to parse through. And then they say, okay, you know, Health Canada says this, so uh, it must be true. But uh, this paper pointed out, so first of all, I think I would make a plea to experts to make their reports uh, really uh, uh, think that you're speaking to a layman, uh, to people who actually don't understand medicine. Uh, properly at all, and and then you might get a result. Who knows? Uh, but in terms of uh, funding of Health Canada, the paper pointed out that more than fifty percent of funding is is actually given to Health Canada by Big Pharma. By more than sixty percent of the funding of the FDA uh, is by Big Pharma. In Australia, it's more than eighty percent. So think about this. If you submit something for approval, you're actually funding the agency that is, is going to approve your drug. It, it cannot get more corrupt than that. And so, um, you know, of course, Health Canada says that that doesn't cause bias, but obviously it does. If, if the big companies are paying more than half your salaries, uh, they, they are going to fast track almost everything that, they, 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 that they're presented with. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, so that's one point. And the other thing about guidelines is you're right, Sean. Some of those protocols are actually very useful. I, I followed as a trauma surgeon for many years and and I taught what is called the ATLS, the Advanced Trauma Life Support System Protocol Guidelines. Guidelines don't don't work very well if the people following them don't know why they are there. and have, haven't been taught to question uh, why they are there. Uh, and they are particularly useless in a fast-moving situation, like in a pandemic. Uh, but if you have conditioned people to guidelines, they say, oh, okay, this is the guideline. Never mind, it, the, the facts have completely changed. 
because there's a new set of evidence that has become available. Um, that doesn't come to them. This is what the guidelines say. Health Canada says this is the guideline we have to follow it. Uh, but Health Canada is uh, potentially a very corrupt body. And for its guideline, it has it has intentionally looked to NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, which and their business is immunization. I mean that the members that's their their career is invested in that in that area, and so other forms of therapy aren't really covered. And they're going to have the final say, or they were presented as having the final say. So yes, absolutely, that was completely skewed. And to bring it back, because I know Sean wants me to, you know, these are things that we really should be discussing in our schools with students. What is conflict of interest, right? How how is bias? You know, what are the different forms of it? And even basic things like what's the legislative assembly? How do how does government actually function? What is the relationship between the the governing of a population and 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 its public institutions and legislation, the making of laws. I there are these huge gaps that are absolutely essential, and they they're just missing. That this content is missing from from kids' education, and it's no wonder that even for people like us, I, I'm sure we all have this. We're faced with this. I mean, the NCI has done a great job of of answering this question, but we were all in this crisis situation during the COVID pandemic or the declared pandemic, where we were asking ourselves, well, how can I have an impact? How can I participate in the society? It's supposed to be a democratic society. I'm supposed to have people who are elected who represent me, and I'm supposed to be able to engage. And I couldn't. And it was really, really difficult to do so. And you know, that's the kind of thing we've got to get into that with the kids, right? They need to see that this is part of the environment they need to change. Otherwise, they grow up, they have absolutely no freedom. All, the only freedom they have is to put their feet up and turn off at the end of the day and watch Netflix or play games. And they're, 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 out, they're not going to be capable of understanding that the real freedom is when they get to decide something and they get to take responsibility for how things work with themselves and everybody else in the community. It's like, these you, are- you just, but you just hit on something so important, I think, is you said the term responsibility. And I, I mean, I think, I think that we're we're in this situation because we have collectively somehow gotten this idea that we don't have to be involved. Like parents haven't been watching the school curriculum, parents haven't been running, you know, going to school board meetings, parents haven't been, you know, running to be school trustees. A lot of them, that's by acclamation. And, you know, we're, I'm just using that as one example, but we could go to the municipal government level, we could go to the provincial, like, who, how, hardly anyone even votes, let alone getting involved in party politics and trying to, you know, make things happen at the policy level within a party. And I think, I think our, one of the biggest tricks, because I'm of the belief, and you guys can disagree, that um, you know, whoever has the agenda, which seems to me to be dismember our culture, so, you know, destroy our, you know, our cultural mores, which you've got to take God out of school first, so we're no longer an objective truth, um, <clears throat> destroy the family, you know, even destroy sexual identity now, like, you deconstruct the pillars, because the family and the church and all of that are pillars that, you know, you you've got to deconstruct those to be able to impose something else. So I'm, I think we're experiencing a coordinated effort 
to basically create a different society, um, you know, whatever that is. But um, <clears throat> to do that, we also had to be taught that everything's okay, don't get involved. Like we're, we, we haven't taken personal responsibility. And so, I mean, I think almost anyone will agree none of our institutions are working for us anymore. But the reality is, is the only way your institution, any institution is going to work for you is if you're working for the institution. Like you have to be taking personally personal responsibility. So, I mean, I, I think maybe you've hit, um, and maybe even by accident, the key to this whole thing. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely essential. And I'm guilty of that too, of just assuming that these things, that I don't have to be involved in the school board. I don't have to be involved in the municipality. That's just absolutely not the case. I mean, you know, you can't, you don't do that with your garden. You don't just turn around and say, oh, well, it'll be fine. If you're not in the garden, it will be overrun with weeds. And that's where we are. That's where we're at. Karen. Okay. Prior to all of this, before I understood the nudge method, uh, the psychological mechanisms used, so on, um, I was aware for many years that our Western culture uh, in terms of parenting, was it distancing parenting? Once again, I'm sorry, the echo. Maybe if you, what do we do about that? Maybe, okay. I don't know why it's like that. Anyhow, we, Western culture is based on distancing strategies, which means instead of um, the primary caregiver being involved in the life of the young infant, Immediately over the years, we would cut breastfeeding down to a much shorter time. Instead of holding babies, they would be put in another room in a crib. Very young age, go to daycare, and and so on. These are distancing strategies. So when this first started, I was trying to analyze what's going on here. Why is so everybody accepting all these distancing? strategies or distancing measures and i think one thing you're talking about being involved in the system and so on but it comes down to the micro level as well to the family to families that were already engaging in behaviors that might have enabled them to accept some of the events that took place over the past three years so distancing i think distancing strategies play a role at the micro level. Parents don't become, some parents don't become as involved in their children's lives as they get older because that's what our society um, valued prior to the past three years and now. I'm wondering if um, one of the solutions for this generation of kids going forward that have experienced this is to focus on them taking personal responsibility for the things that have happened to them. Well, the NCI is a, is a, is a fantastic example, you know, of, of the right response to the, the issue that, that Karen raised, that Dr. Karen raised. Um, and that is, you know, you, you've brought all of these people together and then, and you've made it possible to hear their testimony and, and the, the feet, it's not like when you're listening to the testimony, you're just absorbing information. You're absorbing this incredibly painful, but incredibly meaningful, vital 
uh, experience. And, and that, it's the opposite of distancing. It's you're, you experience this sort of rapprochement. You're coming closer together with people that you had, you didn't anticipate any kind of proximity whatsoever. And you've been told the entire time that your experience, you know, you're a fringe minority, you don't have to be listened to, you're isolated and no one else thinks like you. And then you realize that not only are there, is there this tremendous uh, community of people who have done enormous amounts of, of work studying, but also who were there who are courageous enough to share their stories so that you can actually experience them. You can be there and, and recognize what has really happened. And that that witnessing thing, there's some there's an element of of this sort of personal transformative witnessing that the NCI did a, a fantastic job of making possible for people. And it's something that I think that you guys are thank goodness you're you're continuing to follow up with it because I think that that it it will allow people it will give them a sense of why it's important to get back together and not to allow the distancing that's having to remain in place. Oh yeah, go ahead, Karen. I was trying to open my I think that's very, very, very important, Dr. Matthew, for the adults. But a lot of kids, I believe, there's not enough research behind me to back it up, but observations are also important. And understanding how theories or models or our understanding of children have been, principles of child development have been violated. I think that a lot of kids might be having problems getting back together again. I spoke to example to one teenager um, who told me that prior to all of this, she enjoyed going out and being with people. Then, you know, in adolescence, peer interaction is one of, one of the developmental tasks is to engage with people of the same age. And being locked in and, and then beginning to feel different about everything, she began to have pro problems going out, even going to school when school is back. So we have to take into account that some of these children, especially children who are adolescent during this time, might now be having problems getting back to the social group. So it's very, I mean, it's great that it's there. If there was something like the NCI for adolescents, that would be great. And in their language and using their terms and so on. And take no, into account the difficulty, yeah. I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. So I'm just wondering, we're, we're wrapping, we're getting up to two hours, so we probably should be, um, probably should be closing. I, I know I want to say something about parents taking responsibility because this, this conversation's got me thinking about that. So maybe I'll say that. And then, you know, if the three of you just want to kind of say some things that you might think are important and we'll wrap up. But <clears throat> what I'm wondering is, because like, in, in my opinion, we've really done a disservice to our kids. It, like on multi on multiple levels and and so dr karen you are just talking about how an example of how a teenager you know be pre-covid would be you know wanting to go out and all of this um and i actually thought of myself um i i wasn't supposed to you know be counsel at the nci i just ended up doing that because other lawyers that had agreed you know earlier on as we got closer to hearings they just started dropping like flies and so Toronto's coming up and we didn't have a single lawyer for day one. 
So if you watch day one of Toronto, I called every witness. And then I only had one lawyer for day two in Toronto and I had two for day three. And that just repeated itself through the rest of the hearing. So I ended up um, having to do that. But do you know, I hadn't flown since before COVID. And, you know, we hear about shedding and all of this. And, you know, the idea of being in a tin can with, you know, a whole bunch of people shedding, I, I was actually nervous about it. And then, but I had, I had no choice. I had to do it. And before I knew it, I was flying all across the country. And now I could care less. Like this week, I, you know, had to float, fly to Regina to give a lecture. And I just got back this afternoon from Toronto for giving a lecture. And so actually having to get back in the game just personally got me back in the game, but not without fear beforehand. If I hadn't been forced, I, I probably still wouldn't be flying. So um, <clears throat> I'm wondering if the one of the ways out of this would be for you know parents to start taking responsibility in all areas of their life, you know, concerning this country, including their children's education and including, you know, the problems that their children have had and, you know, taking responsibility not to show fear vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government anymore. And, and even, you know, responsibility for, for you know, telling the, their kids that we were wrong about things. So, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I know for the parents, like for the adults, our way out of this is taking personal responsibility for the state of our country on many levels. Like you could just name it. Um, that's our way out. But maybe maybe us taking responsibility as parents and including our kids in in teaching them that, you know, we're learning, we have to take responsibility and you need to learn that yourself and participate. Maybe that might be something that's one of the ways out. I'm just speculating, but it, it just came to me when you were talking. So, so if the, the three of you have any final thoughts or anything, I, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a while. Uh, I would say, uh, Sean, that we are winning. Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, it may not be obvious to us, but the fact is uh, public opinion is changing. Um, parallel systems are being built as we speak of education, homeschooling, uh, alternative methods of treating common diseases, uh, getting out of big, the, the grasp of big pharma into lifestyle medicine, nutritional medicine, uh, nutraceutical medicine. And I know, Sean, that you are very much involved in the um, in, in the in the herbal drug industry, the natural products industry, and so on. So that 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 awakening is already happening. Um, the skepticism is an essential component of science, and you know, I, I haven't uh, been uh, been. Um, I haven't encountered a more skeptical public in my lifetime about the workings of medicine and science than in the last year or so. Uh, a lot of people who may may think that uh, that the entire public is completely on the side of the of the tyrannical authorities should just have start having a conversation with neighbors many of many people are afraid to start a conversation 
But once you start talking to them, um, a lot of people now, as opposed to three years ago, the majority of people now are, are realized that they've been taken for a ride by public health authorities. That's a very good thing. When you come to vaccination, you know, our campaign, uh, your campaign has worked. Very, very few children got vaccinated to begin with. One is too many for a disease that doesn't really threaten them. And with a vaccine that can, in some cases, cause serious injury to them. Uh, very, very few. So parents are taking notice. Uh, parents are questioning whether, in fact, their child needs this unnecessary and often dangerous vaccine. So uh, we're winning on that front, too. Um, if you look at the world scene, some of the, the, the real tyrants of the COVID era have left the scene already. The New Zealand prime minister resigned some time ago. The Australian prime minister has changed. The, the, the Dutch prime minister has also resigned. Uh, who else? Um, well, next, hopefully, it'll be Trudeau. But uh, for me, the, the, the verse that captures it all is in, in the epistle to the Romans, uh, where Paul says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So Matthew and Karen, any, any final words? Sure. Want to go first, Matthew? Um, well, I really like what you said, Sean, and 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 that that was great, uh, Dr. Christian. Um, I I think we're you know we've got our work cut out for us, trying to figure out how to um, help educate our children because the institutions are set against us. The, the institutions are, have been sort of damaged. We need to restore them, but in you know, because public institutions belong to us. But um, in the meantime, we, we've definitely got to take um, much more personal responsibility uh, for the education of our children and, and helping them to become self-possessed uh, ethical thinkers who have their own integrity and exercise their own discretion. They make their own mind about what's what they will do and what's important for them, as, as I think Sean laid out quite eloquently. Okay. May I speak to the parents and the educators who are watching? Okay. So first of all, I want to validate how hard it must have been for you as an educator, as a parent, as a grandparent, to be so confused. If you were a parent, it must have been very hard for you to explain to your children why you can't go visit Grandma, how, how that must have been horrible. Or that maybe your other, someone you knew died and you couldn't go visit them in the hospital and you couldn't mourn together. So that must have been hard. It must have been hard for you to know that perhaps at max you didn't agree with, with facial covering and yet you had to make your child wear that. It must have been really, really hard. And so I'm wondering if you could ask yourselves questions. And every time something comes up and you say to yourself, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Go with that. Go with that feeling that this just doesn't make sense and figure out why it doesn't make sense for you. 
Learn more about it. In terms of helping your children, notice what's gone on for them. If it helps you to read more about child development or just looking at your child and noticing changes in your child, watch your child carefully to see if there's things that worry you. If you're feeling that something's just off, go with that as well. And know that, like Dr. Francis said, think things are changing. We're beginning to realize that things might not have been right. And just look into it more because, of course, you're the best person that the child has. And that means as an educator as well, that educators must have been so hard for you to have to be, instead of an educator, to have to be a, a police person there telling the child, wash your hands, put your mask on, and so on. So it was a really hard time. Now's the time to ask questions. You come up with it doesn't make sense. Go with that and watch the children's cues and, and, and help them. Help them if you can. And if you feel it's too hard for you to help alone, then go to someone who can give you the support that you need. Thank you very much. Sorry, I was doing that talking. I didn't realize that I had been, I had been muted. Um, Karen, thank you for sharing that, and Matthew, thank you for sharing, and and Francis, thank you for sharing. I, I was so looking forward to this conversation, and I know why. It's just um, you guys bring such a depth of experience, and uh, and I just so enjoy that. So. We've been two hours and 13 minutes. It's gone by very quickly. And I thank you so much for coming and contributing. And I thank everyone that's been watching. We um, at the National Citizens Inquiry are, are just wanting to have open and honest dialogue with um, people that have deep insight. And we appreciate that you share that with us and we're trying to be helpful. And uh, very excited. We're waiting for the commissioners to finish their report. And then we have to get, you know, the lawyer to look at it and we have to get it translated but we're just very excited we're getting some feedback and they're working hard and so we we appreciate you continuing on and taking personal responsibility going forward i'll just share um <clears throat> that at the two meetings i was at this week i i had the honor of speaking in southern saskatchewan outside of regina and then in toronto uh, last night and one thing's changed and so and this is you know Dr. Christian was talking about how, um, you know, we're winning. Um, people are now feeling strong and understanding that they have to take responsibility and that they actually really have to start taking action. And uh, I also noticed that at a meeting in Alberta that I wasn't speaking at, I was just attending that, that same thing. So I think, I think God is, well, I mean, it, just because I, I know God's moving, um, things are changing. And I, I think we have to realize that you know, we have a rocky road ahead, but we are going to build a better future for our children and grandchildren. There's no question about that. And um, and there's going to be, you know, the whole nation having dialogues like this to try and figure out and come up with better ways of doing things. So this is a very exciting time. You know, we think of, oh, we've been through this really bad experience. Well, no, no, this, you're at the best time that you could possibly be, and you're here for this purpose. So on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I'd like to wish you all a good night. And again, thank 
and Kieran, Matthew, and Francis for joining us. Thank you very much and good night. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens' Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens' Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.